Have the ways you've been eating and buying food changed recently? I've noticed that more and more friends, family, and gardeners are paying careful attention to growing plants that you can eat. It's a really rewarding pastime, of course, and of course it helps save on unnecessary trips to the shops. In last month's show, we looked at one of the best-known edible flowers, the nasturtium. Pick them when they're very, very young, because the older they get, the more peppery they get, and it's a kind of mustardness that really gets up your nose. And in a recent edition of our sister show, the RHS Gardening Podcast, we discuss growing herbs on your windowsill. The more you use them, the better they will be. But there are many other unique culinary gems that add an extra, often unexpected, level of taste in the kitchen. Welcome to the Garden Podcast. I'm Chris Young. In this programme, I want to lift the cover and explore the contents of our monthly magazine for RHS members. And today, we're meeting the people behind the stories in our June issue. We start in the kitchen, what better place to start, with RHS ambassador and winner of an impressive 62 RHS gold medals, yes that's 62, Jekka McVicker. She also knows a lot about herbs, running her own herb farm in Bristol. Using these two areas of expertise, she's penned a great article for us called Flavours in Disguise, which looks at some of the more unusual herbs you can grow at home, including East Indian lemongrass and green ginger rosemary. I spoke to her to find out more about using and growing them to spice up my cooking. Do you remember, as a child, smelling the Sunday roast? Of course. And you you actually felt hungry, your mouth watered, you anticipated the meal. With instant food, with, with fast food, you don't have that anticipation. But when you cook with herbs, you fill the whole house with the aroma of the meal. You can make the simplest, poorest meal taste like a feast. If all you've got left in your cupboard is some rice, but in the garden or on your pots on your balcony, you've got some mint, some thyme, some lemon thyme, anything, you can chop that up, add it to your rice, and you've got a meal. I love food (laughs) and my parents loved food and my grandmother loved food and my grandmother had a herb garden, my mother had a herb garden and I always associated every meal with herbs and if you look at history you need to remember the fact that everything was called a pot herb before it became a vegetable. The word vegetable wasn't invented until, I think, the 1600s. So everything was put in the one pot over the open fire, and this was your pot herb. Lovely. So the article gives some great detail about the 12 herbs you've selected. Are there a couple in there that you wouldn't be without? I can't be without Mm. mint. If you come to my house outside my back door, I have a huge, huge plot of just spearmint. And it's a Tashkent mint. And it's a mint that I use with everything from strawberries to tea. It's just fantastic. It is the most useful thing. And the other one I can't be without is rosemary. Rosemary is also another great tea, but it is a perennial evergreen that you can use all year round. 
that's the other thing. Both mint and rosemary are so good for bees. And we keep bees here. And, you know, it is a joy to watch. Now, I've, I've been to um, your nursery a couple of times and I've seen your standard and quality of mint and it is <laughs> incredibly impressive. I don't know why I'm laughing, but it just makes me, it all, always makes me think, how do you do it? So go on then, give us the, the best advice for keeping your mint happy and healthy. My best advice of all is, well, one, grow it in a pot yep. and sink the pot into the ground, a big pot. You know, get yourself a 20 litre pot, put your two litre mint in the middle and let it grow. And then... Come November, December, lift that pot and then have a saw and saw the plant in half because that creeping rhizome will have wrapped itself around the outside of the root ball and you would then put that creeping rhizome back into the middle of the pot because if you don't do that, all that rhizome is exposed to the rain because there's a gap between the side of the pot and the root ball and uh, it rots. So by doing that, you will have a fantastic crop for next year. Most of the herbs in the article are well known to people, but you do talk about lemongrass and lemon verbena. What do you use these for and what's the best way to grow them? Well, let's start with lemon verbena. Lemon verbena, for those that don't know it, is a deciduous shrub. Drops its leaves in winter. The leaves are the best lemon sherbet you've ever had. They make the best tea sap. To grow it well, you prune it sort of the beginning of April, not before, and cut it back as far as you can. Then you'll get masses of new growth and then you can dry the leaves. It's the only leaf I dry and it's very simple. You make a frame and then you staple gun some muslin to it and then you just strip the leaves off, put that frame with the leaves into a spare room, not in the kitchen where it's very humid, and leave it for a few days and those leaves will go crispy and then you can keep it in an airtight container and have lemon verbena tea throughout the winter. Or if you're being posh, you can make lemon verbena jelly or you can make, like Alistair does, that's my son, lemon verbena creme brulee. Oh, oh, crikey. Okay, now no, we're Okay, yeah, we, we get the message there on the, the standard of quality at, at the um, McVicker household. <laughs> One of the other things people like to do is make herb oils and vinegars. How easy is it to do this at home? Oils, I steer well clear of. When I wrote my first book, I had oils in there um, because I used to make them. And the Americans said I was giving everyone botulism. So I got frightened off. But what I do make now is herb vinegars and herb gin. All right, herb vinegars first. It is so easy. It is so fantastic. You can have sweet vinegars, you know, like um, shrubs, or you can make just standard vinegars. It is so simple. All you do is you get cheap and cheerful white wine vinegar. You pour off the top bit so you can have room to put in leaves. Choose whatever herb you want. Tarragon vinegar is a classic. So what you do is you put the leaves, a whole sprig, actually. I put a number of sprigs into the bottle. I then top it up if I need and I leave it on my windowsill, sunny windowsill, for about four to six weeks. Strain it if you wish. But I tend to leave the leaves in uh, because vinegar doesn't make the leaves go mouldy. 
So that's why... And, and is that why it's okay to put it exactly. in the sun rather than into a dark Where, corner? Whereas with, with olive oil, or if you're making an oil, if the leaves get exposed to the air in the olive oil, and when you started using it, what happens then is you land up with the oil and the leaves getting botulism and going mouldy, and then they contaminate the whole oil. Ah, okay. But the actual vinegars, I find vinegars so useful. For example, I made a bouquet garnet vinegar where I put thyme, bay, and rosemary into my vinegar. And then I will use a tablespoonful of that if I'm making a soup. Instead of using the white wine to flavour it, you can use your white wine vinegar. Jekka McVicker. And I'm sure the whole young family is going to benefit from my new culinary skills. Well, Mrs Young may hope so, definitely. As well as unique kitchen garnishes to whet your appetite, this month's issue is packed full of great writing, great photography and great information. And as ever, we're spoiled for choice. Supporting British plant nurseries is core to what the garden has been doing for many decades now. And Deputy Editor Phil Clayton continues that tradition. This month, he visits a nursery called Daisy Roots in Hertfordshire. It's a lovely all-rounder of a nursery, specifically looking at perennials and grasses, many of which are either drought-tolerant or good for pollinators. True tropical-style gardens can be hard to pull off, and in some senses they can be a bit naff if they're not done that well. But in this issue, we focus on a couple of articles that are quite different but related around the tropical theme. One celebrates a garden in South London, quite a tight space, but it is absolutely crammed and full of big-leaved, lush, inspirational planting that just transcends you to a different part of the world. And the other is an article all about specific plants to use, big-leaved plants, which are the best plants for different situations in your garden, and how can you select the very best one that will grow as well as you want it to. One of the things I really love about being editor is about getting people's comments, their thoughts and their ideas, whether that's members in the letters page or our columnists at the back of the magazine. And as ever, we're spoiled for choice. Keith Wiley, that well-known plantsman, tells us why we should be growing dioramas, the angels' fishing rods, beautiful, magnificent plants. And Leah Leendertz revels in the importance and the value of scent and fragrance in the garden. Now picture a scene. It's evening and you've left a light on and a window open. And you know what happens next. Of course, the moths are in. We've all been there. But did you know that not all moths flutter around at night? There are some, in fact, that are in full flight during daylight hours. In this month's magazine, Stephanie Bird profiles these outliers. And Stephanie is a plant health scientist for the RHS. And her article includes some amazing close-up photos to help you spot the different moths in your own garden. Stefan is so much of a moth fan, and even her clothes reflect her interest, that she actually dressed up for this interview. Especially for the occasion, I have put on one of my favourite moth t-shirts for today. It's got garden tigers on it and jersey tigers, which are not tigers, they are species of moth. So it's black background, lots of moths. Moths are Lepidoptera, so they're the same really as butterflies. In the UK there are over 2,500 species, the majority of which fly at night. But there are a handful you can see during the day. 
I went for a walk last week and I was able to see some and point them out to people, obviously from a distance. So I've been interested in moths well since I was little and it all stemmed from finding an incredibly exciting caterpillar. Ooh, I'd have probably been about five or six at the time. It was a Vapora moth caterpillar, if you're familiar with it. These have plumes of exciting red and yellow hairs. And I found it and I was like, this is going to turn into something amazing. So I collected it. I collected leaves of the plant that I found it on. I fed it. It formed a cocoon. I was really excited. But then when it emerged, it was small and grey and and sort of hairy and it didn't have any wings and I thought oh no I fed it the wrong thing and now it hasn't grown properly and I was quite disappointed because I was expecting huge colourful wings but then I went away and I looked up what it was because my mum did have a, a moth book and this was what the female was supposed to look like but it was from that point that I decided whenever I found an exciting caterpillar, I was going to work out what it would turn into beforehand, just so I knew what I was expecting and I wasn't going to be disappointed. It did mean the hours of unrolling stinging nettle leaves trying to get a peacock butterfly caterpillars. The transformation from being a caterpillar to becoming a moth or a butterfly is something that still interests me today. If you go to YouTube, you can watch the videos of sort of caterpillars pupating and then with the time lapse, them emerging and sort of pumping out their wings and letting them dry out and flying away. So the majority of the moths that are day flying, they're more colourful than some of the others because they might be distasteful, which means they're more able to fly around and not be eaten during the day. One of the moths I actually like to talk about is the current clearwing. It looks a lot like a wasp. It has sort of a really elongated abdomen and compared to other moths, the wings are very narrow and wasp-like with sort of clear patches. Their antennae are also sort of very black and not feathery and the coloration it's mostly yellow and black if you were to sort of glance over it you might think it was a species of wasp another of the moths that i really like is a cinnabar moth they're like a cartoon caterpillar they're orange and black and stripy and then the moths they're small and quite striking one of the moths that I was less familiar with before I started researching was the Mother Shipton moth, which had a very sort of interesting backstory in terms of its name. So if you're looking straight on at the moth, so imagine it's got its wings closed, it forms a sort of a triangle shape and you've got sort of a symmetric image of two old ladies with really hooked noses and chins that jut upwards and black eyes sort of looking at each other from either side of the edges of the moth's wings. There's a legend of a 16th century Yorkshire prophetess and her name was Mother Shipton and it's just like a characteristic old, old crone kind of image. The article talks about how there's a side profile of this old lady. And to begin with, I was just like, is there? Is there really? And then I looked at it and I could definitely, definitely see it. It's like with clouds, you start looking at them and then you, you can see different images and shapes. 
there are a large number of moths, so they'll feed on a wide range of plants. Day-flying moths, such as the silver wine moth and the hummingbird hawk moth, can be lured with plants like sea lavender and buddleias and Centranthus rubra and lychnis. However, like the moths, that's not the only stage of these exciting insects. So larval food plants are very important. So tolerating a bit of damage in your garden, as most caterpillars are only present in very small numbers, so their feeding won't really impact the overall health and vigour of the plants. Also, there are some general plants which a large range of caterpillars will eat. So things like willow herb and ladies' dead straw and primrose and thyme. So knowing which moths you have in your area and planting the larval food plants of those moths. So even if you plant the larval food for a species you really like, unless it's in the area, then it's not going to suddenly appear. And maybe not applying insecticides to plants if you do spot damage. Stephanie Bird there on Day Flying Moths. At The Garden magazine, we're all about celebrating not just the plants that make us feel good, but the people that bring them to our attention. Since it began in 1804, the RHS has worked with exceptional people who've explored the world looking for its most weird and wonderful flora. One such person is Roy Lancaster, celebrated plantsman and columnist. This month sees another instalment of his View From My Window series. It's such an apt title of the series and such an apt idea, especially with so many of us still working and living at home. We joined Roy, before lockdown, peering out from his window, overlooking a garden full of astonishing plants from around the world. I always claim I was tricked into becoming a gardener because uh, I was an avid bird watcher and I was also keen on... Uh, steam engines but I was talked out of it by um, the curator of my local museum I grow several different magnolias but this was the almost the first one I planted magnolia cylindrica this I grew from seed sent to me from the Shanghai Botanic Garden it's probably as big as it's going to get it's uh, flowers here usually in April and the flowers are white, they're tulip-shaped, and the petals open wide, or tepals open wide, uh, so they're white with a faint purple stain at the base on the outside. It uh, happens to be the champion of its kind, that is the Troby, that's a tree-registered British Isle champion of Britain and Ireland. In terms of its uh, height, it must be about... 40 feet and it's rounded out uh, so there's there's no rich growth coming in into that canopy so I think that's probably it but I can look forward to that every year in April and it dominates the sky it's the tree I can see it from my bedroom without getting out of bed there used to be a big gap there through which I used to pass plants through spare plants through to my neighbour Dot uh, it was like one of these serving hatches you get in, in, in the kitchen in the big, the grand old houses. And so it's, uh, but now it's been blocked by that bamboo. And that bamboo is growing under a birch that I put in called Betula luminifera. Luminifera, because of the glands under the leaf, which are shining in certain conditions, not always apparent, uh, I have to say, but so it, it kind of shines when the wind's blowing through them. The bark is quite unlike that of uh, most 
birches. It's not white. It's not even red or peely uh, like Albusinensis. It's not dark and peely like Nigra from America, the river birch. It's like a cherry. And it is a kind of a warm, dark, some mahogany red. It has a wonderful crown. You can see it spreading above you there and above that bamboo. And it's at its best when it's in catkin. And the catkins come out in February into March. And they're really long. They can be up to at least 10 to 12, sometimes 15 centimetres long in bunches. Lots and lots. I want to mention this rose, one of my favourite roses. Constance Spry, but it's beautiful. Look at that double flower, lots of petals, the rich fragrance. And even though it may only flower a couple of weeks or so, I love it. I look forward to it. I wouldn't be without it. I just love this rose, and I've lived it a long time now. My life would be empty without it. We're looking over the patio now, and and we're looking here from here to a tree which has what appears to be long monkey's tails and they're green those are fruiting catkins of a very special Chinese hornbeam known as Capinus fangiana and it is the largest leaved of all the hornbeams and by far the longest in its fruiting catkins and this particular tree which is about five meters high it's got a rounded head but I have cut the lower branches so you can see through it and isolated the crown so the crown stands out. And um, I've seen that in the wild. And I've seen it in some of the ancient um, forests, the primary forests in southern Sichuan province in China, above the Yangtze River. And there, I remember standing beneath, and I have a photograph somewhere of me standing beneath a tree of Fangiena, which must have been 60, if not 70 feet high, with a huge trunk and someone took a photograph of me standing with it as proof that this is capable of a huge size. So it's by far one of the uh, largest of the hornbeams. I've got several other hornbeams, but that is really spectacular now, and it's always uh, it's an eye-catcher when people come and they've never seen anything quite like it. We only know a thimble full of knowledge. Every plant has a story, and some plants, those stories have never been told or never been discovered. So the harmless-looking plant or something that you want to kill because it's a weed may well have something that would save lives or cure a disease. So have a respect for everything. And I've always respected weeds because I see them as the great survivors. Always great to hear from Roy Lancaster. What a knowledgeable chap he is. So, what can you see from your window? With so many of us staying at home now and working from home, windows and the planter we grow on the other side has never been more important. For me, I've realised what a quirky and odd house that we bought a few years ago. It's a 300-year-old cottage in the shape of a U, and we sit on top of a hill in Northamptonshire and Rutland. And at the front, where my office is, it's probably the darkest bit of the plot, which may not be the most ideal situation for gardening. But the more I've sat here over the last few weeks working from home, the more I've actually seen. And the amount of birds just even 
blackbirds, magpies, pigeons that are always going past the window. But for me, obviously, it's about the plants that are growing outside. There's some bluebells which have been dotted around some of the steps. There's also the unfurling fern, the Dryopteris wallachiana, and the limey green new shoots of that are really coming to the fore now. I'd love to hear about what you can see from your window. Tell me by finding the RHS on social media and use the hashtag RHSpodcast. If you'd like to learn more on what we've looked at today, just head to our website, rhs.org.uk forward slash the garden podcast. Next month, we'll be getting into July's edition of the magazine, where we'll be reveling in echinaceas and celebrating currants. Until then, it's goodbye from me, Chris Young. 